アメリカで起きた白人警官による黒人暴行死事件を受け東京で14日人種差別に抗議するデモがありましたはい。
there has been a dialogue that has taken place in America, which has kind of minimized it, in which there's a recognition now that this is a problematic style of performance in terms of how it represents Black people. Japan, however, creates a different situation in that there is a myth in Japan that racism doesn't exist, that anti-Black racism in particular is something that is beyond the experience of Japanese people, so that slavery, Jim Crow, the things that we associate with Black discrimination, discrimination against Blacks in the United States and in the West, the Japanese feel they have no experience of that, and therefore the kind of racial mimicry that you find in Blackface doesn't really apply. It's not malicious. It's not hateful. But it also tends to obscure the fact that racism does exist in Japan. Anti-Black racism in particular exists in Japan and has existed in Japan for quite a long time. If you look at slavery, for example, Japan's first contact with the Europeans, the Portuguese, the Dutch, with the Spanish, was also Japan's introduction to Western African slavery, where slaves were brought with the Europeans to Japan. And if you look at Namban Byobu, you will see depictions of kind of the power relationship that existed between Japanese and whites and their servants. So there is that history of slavery, not only in terms of slaves being brought to Japan, but also Japanese themselves being reduced to slavery by the Portuguese themselves and sent in many cases to Europe until the practice was banned in the 16th century. You also had Jim Crow in Japan as well. Military bases during the occupation and after were racially segregated, some primarily because racial segregation was legally abolished in the 1950s. But even after that, de facto racial segregation continued in the military bases as well as in the communities surrounding those military bases. And of course, Japanese living in those areas were able to witness and even participate in the system of Jim Crow as it existed. And then, of course, you had the treatment of multiracial children born during the occupation. And many children of Black the Japanese heritage were particularly singled out as objects of, of disdain and abuse. So there is a history of racism in Japan. And blackface, although it is something that is on the stage or on television or popular media, feeds into these images, these negative images of Black people that permeate a vast amount of Japanese media and popular culture. I'd also point out that Japan's embrace of blackface is something that, again, has become a part of their own tradition. In 1854, Commodore Perry treated the Japanese to a minstrel show, a blackface minstrel show performed by white members of his crew. And that received quite a reception by the Japanese. They were very pleased, very happy, found it very amusing. And a couple of decades after that, you saw the emergence of Japan's first blackface minstrel. Following that, you would see blackface on the silver screen and silent films produced in Japan, eventually on television and in other media. So there is a tradition of blackface in Japan as well. But again, the feeling in Japan is, is that this is something different. This is something that isn't quite the same as American blackface. It doesn't have the maliciousness. It doesn't have the hatred. It's not a representation of, of anti-black feeling. And yet, if you look at Japanese society and how it perceives blacks in terms of being comical, in terms of being unsophisticated, in terms of being outsiders, an extreme example of outsiders. You cannot say that blackface in Japan lacks this kind of racial basis. 
That's a great point. When there was a recent high profile case when famous comedian Hamada Masatoshi put on blackface when he was mm-hmm. impersonating Axel Foley from the Beverly Hills Cop series, people were saying, oh, well, this is just meant to be a genuine homage. Mm-hmm. Uh, or there was another case in Osaka when there was a doo-wop group that went on to a New Year's show, I believe it was, right. and they too donned blackface. And you know, they said, oh, well, this is just an homage to black culture. But, you know, people were defending it as saying, well, if we remove it from the American context, it takes on a different meaning. And that, again, fits into that same narrative that you were talking about where, oh, there is no anti-black racism in Japan. But, of course, when we look at venues like Twitter, for example, or online, there's this whole phenomenon of the netto uyo or these online trolls. Mm-hmm. And people like Miyamoto Ariano certainly yes. faced a lot of hate speech as a result of being named Miss Japan in 2015. Right. And so then even in the wake of the Black Lives Matter marches, in places like Tokyo and Osaka, mm-hmm. you know, there was some online rhetoric saying, well, this is an American problem. This isn't a Japanese problem. But of course, this would be belied by the fact of this online racism that we've been seeing. Yes. And it's actually quite frightening because you mentioned the case of Miyamoto, the young woman who was crowned Miss Universe Japan in 2015. She had made a statement in an interview that she had experienced racism in Japan. And after that statement, she received considerable criticism on the internet. And a lot of that criticism was racist, no ways around it. She was called gorilla. She was called by the N-word. She was called the Japanese equivalent of the N-word. And her views were taken as being anti-Japanese. So anyone who relates their experiences of racism in Japan is seen by members of the right wing here as being anti-Japanese. And so she became a target of that. But not only her, I mean, if you go back for example, to Naomi Osaka's win at the U.S. Open against Serena Williams. She also faced abuse, similar to that Miyamoto faced. And again, their choice epithets that are used constantly, continuously in their attacks on these individuals. Gorilla is one of them, the N-word, not only in its English version, but also in its Romanized version, and also in Katakana. And what's interesting, too, is that the racism isn't just directed at Blacks. It also shows a a remarkable dovetailing with Japanese feelings against ethnic Koreans. And I've looked at a number of posts, Nichan and Gochan being kind of the prominent ones that are kind of well known for their hate speech. But a topic can begin as an attack on Black people. But as the threat goes on, it almost consistently becomes an attack on ethnic Koreans. So, for example, when Miyamoto said that she experienced racism in Japan, there were a number of posts that said something to the effect that, oh, well, she's just like a Korean. They're always complaining about racism. Or she's overly sensitive, just like the Koreans are. And using racial epithets that are applied to Koreans to her as well. It's remarkable in one sense, but then it's not remarkable in in another And I say that because in the 1960s, Hiroshi Wagasuma and Toshinao Yoneyama had written a book called um, Henken no Kozo, The Structure of Prejudice. And what's interesting about that, it looks at how Japanese view different foreigners, uh, Western foreigners, Asian foreigners, different racial groups. The samples was quite large. It consisted of people college educated, those who weren't, workers, you know, professionals, etc., And it examined different attitudes that were directed at Western whites and and non-whites. And generally in the survey, Western Europeans, white Europeans, Americans rated favorably in terms of, of Japanese opinion. Blacks, Black, Japanese, half, and Koreans consistently ranked at the bottom. 
And this continued. And in the 1990s, there was another survey done by a different scholar and pretty much found the same result. So there is an equation in the Japanese mind with Koreans and, and Blacks, and they're both at the bottom of the racial hierarchy. And this becomes explicit when you're looking at the internet and you're looking at the commentaries and you're looking at the forums. It's, it's actually, in a sense, very frightening. And you mentioned, you know, when Japanese people think about multi-ethnic children, there is this kind of elevation of white Japanese half-kids, to use that term, in the popular imagination, even though white and mm-hmm. Japanese actually makes up a, a not so sizable proportion, right? I think it's 50% is actually Chinese and Japanese, but white and Japanese are kind of overrepresented right. in the popular imagination. Right. And right. You know, this speaks to, you know, like you were talking about, the kind of elevation of whiteness in Japanese culture, perhaps. And you also mentioned Naomi Osaka as a target of some of these kind of racist representations in opposition to, say, Miyamoto Ariana, where there was questioning of her Japanese-ness as a result of her blackness. Mm-hmm. And there was this vitriolic reaction or rejection of her as Japanese, whereas it seems like a few years later now, maybe perhaps because Naomi Osaka is a world-famous athlete, there's been a little bit more embracing, but with that embracing, there comes almost the inversion of blackface, which is the kind of whitewashing of Naomi Osaka. Mm -hmm. And you've written specifically about this in reference to this notorious Nishin ad, where she's animated in a skin tone that almost negates her blackness, turns her almost into a Caucasian. So what does this tell us about Japanese views of of both whiteness and blackness along with racial difference? I I think that whiteness is normalized in Japan. And by whiteness, I mean Caucasian whiteness. It's, It's interesting because whiteness is a characteristic of Japanese themselves. Okay, they consider themselves, and long before they encountered Caucasians, they considered their skin white. And in fact, when they first encountered Caucasians, they did not consider the whiteness of white skin, that makes any sense, wasn't even something that they were focused upon. It was hair color, it was eye color, it was eye shape, it was hairiness, it was the nose. If you look at references to Europeans during the initial stages of contact, skin color wasn't a major focus. That would come later. And in fact, if you look at some illustrations from the period of Japanese and Europeans, the Europeans are drawn with a kind of a shading to indicate that they were more darkly complected than Japanese were. So there is that sense of of whiteness. But there's also the sense, uh, particularly as we move from the Meiji period onward, of elevating white skin in white racial features as kind of aspirational aspects of a kind of universal beauty that the Japanese should aim for. And what's interesting is certainly when the Nishin commercial came out and we saw the the representation of Naomi Osaka in those ads, the, the issue of whitewashing came up. I don't think the Japanese would look at it as whitewashing in the sense of taking her and Caucasianizing her, taking her ethnic features, her racial features, and converting them to racial features associated with white people. They weren't trying to whiten her or whitewash her. They were trying to Japanize her. And they were trying to Japanize her by portraying her in the way Japanese illustrators portray Japanese. And that is by incorporating into them features that, from a Western point of view, increasingly from a Japanese point of view as well, look like white characters. They have white racial features. And I think it's interesting to wonder why this is the case, because the expression that the Japanese use for this is mukokuseki, statelessness, that having these kind of white-looking features isn't so much having white features as being stateless, which kind of makes you wonder what states they're referring to. 
But in doing this, it's not so much they're trying to make her white, but they're trying to make her more Japanese, which is the irony, okay, by stripping her of, of any kind of ethnic markers that show her African heritage, that this is somehow making her more acceptable to the Japanese public. Now, what's, what's interesting, what's the complicating factor to that is, is that if you go online and you look up images of Naomi Osaka drawn by ordinary Japanese people, they retain her ethnic racial characteristics, okay? And, and, and not in any kind, well, there are a few, but not many, but not in any characterized way. I mean, you look at it and you say, hey, that is Naomi Osaka. It looks like her and she looks like she's a, you know, of, of mixed heritage, etc. There's no way that you confuse that representation of her in those illustrations with what was marketed by Nishin, which suggests a number of things. One being that maybe... The problem is not so much in the, in the Japanese general public as it is in the corporate mindset that says that, hey, we can sell a product, but the way that we sell it is to make sure that it conforms to a certain you know, look that we believe is acceptable to the general public. And I think in some ways, the general public may be a bit beyond that and more accepting of her as she is, as opposed to this kind of branding of her, if you forgive the pun. I mean, one of the reactions that I saw questioning Naomi Osaka's Japanese in particular was people pointed out, well, she doesn't even speak Japanese. She hasn't lived in Japan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go back and you listen to interviews by Miyamoto Ariana. I mean, she's right. raised in Japan, speaks native Japanese. You know, th- there is no question to her Japanese-ness in a sense of where she's lived, where she's grown up, you know, her, her daily life is completely Japanese. But, you know, the language aspect was never applied there. But I mean, it's not to say that we would expect some kind of consistent logic when it comes to racial understandings of belonging. But it it even goes beyond that, because, again, it's not just a matter of Miyamoto and Osaka having mixed ethnic heritage, okay, having, quote, Japanese blood or not having it or how much and trying to quantify it to determine, you know, who's who's Japanese enough. I'll give you another example from Japanese social media. Meghan Markle. Okay, now she is also a person of mixed ethnic background, okay, in this case, white and African-American. When it was announced that she was going to marry Prince Henry, you got a lot of commentary on the internet, and some predicted the end of England. They talked about the destruction of the monarchy. They also called her by a number of other racial epithets that were also applied to Miyamoto and Osaka. So it's not just a matter of, of language. It's not just a matter of, of whether or not they have a sufficient amount of Japanese blood or not. There is something there that says that, you know, it's, it's the one drop rule of racism, where if you have one drop of black blood, whether you, have, whether you have Japanese, quote, blood or other types of blood, it's that one drop that kind of becomes the basis for this disdain. And it also carried on into Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's son. Okay, when it was announced that he was born, there was a comment in one of the social media threads. Well, let's give the kid a name. And some of the names that were suggested were Prince Ebola, Prince Othello, Prince Louis Armstrong, and Prince Colombo. Okay. And one person even said, well, why are we even thinking about naming a monkey? So again, it's, it's not just a matter of, quote, racial mixture and whether or not the individual in question is somehow sufficiently Japanese or not. The question is, are they sufficiently human enough? Which is a really great problematic when dealing with this. 
And as you said, with you know the kind of one drop rule, I mean, this is something that other members of marginalized populations would talk about as well. And you know, people of Ainu descent, for example, mm-hmm. as soon as you have that one drop of Ainu blood, then you know, you're seen as Ainu, you're seen as an other, an eternal frozen other. And you were talking before about the connections in conventional wisdom mm-hmm. between Black Japanese and Korean Japanese. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's maybe one of those connections. Yeah, well, again, it, it's both groups are viewed as being outsiders, as being mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm sharing you know certain characteristics of, of that otherness. I mean, if you look at the stereotypes that are directed at, at Koreans, it's that they're emotional, it's that they're overly sensitive. Those are stereotypes which dovetail greatly with stereotypes of Blacks as being angry. We saw that with the NHK right, right. broadcast, the animated cartoon with that, where you had the muscle-bound guy in the wife-beater right. T-shirt and Blacks looting and rioting behind him. And here we had this angry Black man. Right, very coarse language, vulgar right. language almost. Yeah, yeah, overly emotional, you know. And, and so that becomes a sign of the other, whether or not that other is Korean or, you know, Black. And speaking of that kind of media representation of black masculinity in particular, I wanted to circle back to you were talking before about depictions of minstrelsy in Japanese film. But then, especially in the post-war period, we do start to see black actors in Japan and Chico Laurent or Chico Roland comes to mind and appearing in a number of new wave films, you know, Suzuki Seijun films or Kurohara Koreyoshi films. But then you've written also about depictions of, of blackness in films, even ranging into things like pornography, for example. Right. And so can you elaborate on how these sensationalized representations of black masculinity have impacted Japanese attitudes towards black individuals and particularly men in Japan? Well, there, there's a tendency to fetishize black men in Japan, particularly in Japanese popular culture. And that goes back at least, I mean, one of the earliest examples of that in my mind is Oikenzaburo Shiku, which tells the story of a, a black pilot who crashes in a small village in Japan and becomes the object of the children in the village. And a lot of that depiction of him is kind of this homoerotic focus on the black phallus and how that's fascinating for the children. And also animal imagery as well, as goes to the the original title of the short story. And you see that repeated consistently in Japanese popular culture, whether it's in the works of Yamada Amy, who's written rather extensively fiction and autobiographical accounts of sexual relationships between black men and Japanese women, you see it in advertisements for penal enhancement supplements that promise the consumer to have penises as, as big as those of black men. You see it in pornography specifically. I teach a course. I wanted to provide some educational material for my students. And I wanted to see what, I, what kind of DVDs I could get about you know, African or black culture or whatever. So I entered Kokujin in the, uh, oh, the search engine. Oh, no. We cannot recommend this to our listeners. (laughs) No, we cannot recommend this to your listeners. Um, Yeah, this was in 2006. And I got about 54, 56 titles, of which the majority of them were pornographic titles. A few decades later, I did it again. What was originally 50 titles had expanded to over a thousand. And they're all the same theme. They're basically a fetishization of black men, which depicts them as ambulatory penises who are there to serve Japanese women and also as masturbatory fodder for Japanese men. And these are Japanese produced works. These aren't coming from the States. These are Japanese produced works. Uh, if you did the same experiment, and, and I did this, you put in Hakujin for the DVDs, where you get a wide variety of things and not just pornographic. But when the pornographic titles do come up, it tends to be fetidization, not of, of white men and white penises, but of, of white women. 
particularly blonde women. And the pornography that you find tends to be American pornography. So there's a distinction there. And that association of Blacks with hypersexuality, with, again, being these kind of walking penises, pervades Japanese popular culture. And it impacts, I think, the way African-American men, Black men, African men are viewed here as threats, as, as sexual animals. And a lot of the titles of these DVDs are, for example, concern rape. And when an incident of, of rape occurs in Japan, there's a tendency to associate that with Black men. Now, the other aspect of this is that and one of the things I'm glad to see is that a lot of recent research is now focusing on representations of Black women. And that research in itself, and I have to admit, even with my own research, that has not been a substantial segment of, the, of what I've studied, if only because the images are not as readily available as, as the images of Black men. There are issues of gender, there are issues of race, and the intersection of the two that come into play here and that continue to require interrogation and close study. And you mentioned that there is this kind of popular image of black men as particularly threatening or scary in Japan. I mean, I experienced this myself, even when I went to Japan the first time in 2002, uh, which is right after the World Cup. And I was changing trains in Shinjuku Station a lot. And so I was hanging around Kabukicho or different parts of Shinjuku Station. And, you know, all my Japanese friends are like, oh, well, you know, watch out for Kabukicho. That's where, you know, all the big black guys will try to get you into their bar and then you'll, you'll get scammed or something like that. And, and I think people who have spent time in that part of Tokyo would recognize these kind of bar wranglers. Mm-hmm. And so, but, you know, all of my Japanese friends were like, oh, you know, watch out. That's what makes it dangerous in this part of town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's there and it's, it's hard to, I mean, stereotypes have legs of their own. And they're, they're hard to get rid of. And once they begin to, to walk around, even if you have contrary evidence to the effect, it's not going to be looked at, it's not going to be examined, and it's going to be you know, cast aside because it's, it's very difficult to abandon a set of notions and ideas that have basically defined for you what the other is. And then you'd have to kind of do the groundwork yourself. And it's much easier to incorporate received ideas than to challenge them. You mentioned Hamada-san's blackface. What I find significant about that is, and again, how difficult it is to kind of move beyond the stereotypes, even when they're pointed out to you. And the example that, that I'll give with this case is that when the original program aired on, I think, New Year's Eve, afterwards, of course, it created a controversy. And the network that aired it apologized. Okay, we're not going to do this anymore, kind of. A week later, literally a week later, That same segment was rebroadcast, but with a rap melody added, in which, ironically, it acknowledged that the first airing caused the controversy. So here you had a company, a corporate entity that received criticism and said, oh, we've learned from that and we will certainly be cautious in in the future. And one week later, repeats the broadcast and kind of says, well, we were aware that this was problematic. And yet they aired it again and they added as if to kind of rub your noses in it, a rap, which basically has a line saying, you know, we knew this is kind of controversy, seeing someone in blackface. So even, even when you're informed, it's hard to break the pattern. I mean, we see that to kind of dove it back to the states. We see that in what's taking place in the United States right now, where these things have been repeated and where there's been this kind of acknowledgement that these issues are there, and yet nothing really of any substantial nature has changed. There's an old line from an X-File, one of the opening credits, apology is policy. And that's kind of what we're left with now.
apologies to not stand for a real reflection or an aspect of contrition about something that was done that was wrong. It's basically a, a policy so that we can move on to, to something else and to kind of placate those who were angry or upset with what was said or done. And you find that in both the United States and in, in Japan. I have a very hard time in doing my research of distinguishing the two because they're so, in many ways, they're so interrelated. And if there's a difference between Japanese racism and American racism as it applies to, to Black folk, it is that in America, it comes with guns. In Japan, it, there are no guns. And so although you will have people who are racially profiled here as well, and not just Black folk, but other foreigners as well, it doesn't lead to the violent consequences that take place in the United States all too often. That doesn't mean that, you know, there isn't a level of hatred, there isn't a level of disdain here, but the results of that are quite different. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.